A Tragedy in the Forest of Morgue. An accident, the merest accident, led to the solution, or rather, produced a series of circumstances that ended by leading to the solution. A reporter on the staff of an important Paris paper, who had been sent to make investigations on the spot, concluded his article with the following words. I repeat, therefore, that we must wait for fresh events, fresh facts, we must wait for some lucky accident, as things stand, we are simply wasting our time. The elements of the truth are not even sufficient to suggest a plausible theory. We are in the midst of the most absolute, painful, impenetrable darkness. There is nothing to be done. All the Sherlock Holmeses in the world would not know what to make of the mystery, and Arsène Lupin himself, if he will allow me to say so, would have to pay forfeit here. On the day after the appearance of that article, the newspaper in question printed this telegram. Have sometimes paid forfeit, but never over such a silly thing as this. The Saint-Nicolas tragedy is a mystery for babies. Arsène Lupin. And the editor added, We insert this telegram as a matter of curiosity, for it is obviously the work of a wag. Arsène Lupin, past master though he be in the art of practical joking, would be the last man to display such childish flippancy. Two days elapsed, and then the paper published the famous letter, so precise and categorical in its conclusions, in which Arsène Lupin furnished the solution of the problem. I quote it in full. Sir, you have taken me on my weak side by defying me. You challenge me, and I accept the challenge. And I will begin by declaring once more that the Saint-Nicolas tragedy is a mystery for babies. I know nothing so simple, so natural, and the proof of the simplicity shall lie in the succinctness of my demonstration. It is contained in these few words. When a crime seems to go beyond the ordinary scope of things, when it seems unusual and stupid, then there are many chances that its explanation is to be found in superordinary, supernatural, superhuman motives. I say that there are many chances, for we must always allow for the part played by absurdity in the most logical and commonplace events. But, of course, it is impossible to see things as they are and not to take account of the absurd and the disproportionate. I was struck from the very beginning by that very evident character of unusualness. We have, first of all, the awkward zigzag course of the motor car, which would give one the impression that the car was driven by a novice. People have spoken of a drunkard or a madman, a justifiable supposition in itself. But neither madness nor drunkenness would account for the incredible strength required to transport, especially in so short a space of time, the stone with which the unfortunate woman's head was crushed. That proceeding called for a muscular power so great that I do not hesitate to look upon it as a second sign of the unusualness that marks the whole tragedy. And why move that enormous stone to finish off the victim when a mere pebble would have done the work? 
Why again was the murderer not killed, or at least reduced to a temporary state of helplessness in the terrible somersault turned by the car? How did he disappear? Why did he throw his fur coat there? Then, on another day, his goggles. Unusual, useless, stupid acts. Why besides convey that wounded, dying woman on the driver's seat of the car where everybody could see her? Why do that instead of putting her inside or flinging her into some corner dead just as the man was flung under the brambles in the ditch? Unusualness. Stupidity. Everything in the whole story is absurd. Everything points to hesitation, incoherency, awkwardness, the silliness of a child, or rather of a mad, blundering savage, of a brute. Look at the bottle of brandy. There was a corkscrew. It was found in the pocket of the great coat. Did the murderer use it? Yes, the marks of the corkscrew can be seen on the seal, but the operation was too complicated for him. He broke the neck with a stone. Always stones. Observe the detail. They are the only weapon, the only implement which the creature employs. It is his customary weapon, his familiar implement. He kills the man with a stone, he kills the woman with a stone, and he opens bottles with a stone. A brute, I repeat, a savage, disordered, unhinged, suddenly driven mad. By what? Why, of course, by the same brandy, which he swallowed at a draft while the driver and his companion were having breakfast in the field. He got out of the limousine, in which he was traveling, in his goatskin coat and his fur cap, took the bottle, broke off the neck, and drank. There is the whole story. Having drunk, he went raving mad and hid out at random, without reason. Then, seized with instinctive fear, dreading the inevitable punishment, he hid the body of the man. Then, like an idiot, he took up the wounded woman and ran away. He ran away in that motor car, which he did not know how to work, but which to him represented safety, escape from capture. But the money, you will ask? The stolen pocketbook? Who says that it was not some passing tramp, some laborer guided by the stench of the corpse? Very well, you object, but the brute would have been found as he is hiding somewhere near the turn, and as, after all, he must eat and drink. Well, well, I see that you have not yet understood. The simplest way, I suppose, to have done and to answer your objections is to make straight for the mark. Then let the gentlemen of the police and the gendarmerie themselves make straight for the mark. Let them take firearms. Let them explore the forest within a radius of two or three hundred yards from the turn, no more. But instead of exploring with their heads down and their eyes fixed on the ground, let them look up into the air. Yes, into the air, among the leaves and branches of the tallest oaks and most unlikely beeches. And believe me, they will see him. For he is there. He is there, bewildered, piteously at a loss, seeking for the man and woman whom he has killed, looking for them and waiting for them and not daring to go away and quite unable to understand. I myself am exceedingly sorry that I am kept in town by urgent private affairs and by some complicated matters of business which I have to set going, for I should much have liked to see the end of this rather curious adventure. Pray, therefore, excuse me to my kind friends in the police, and permit me to be, sir, 
your obedient servant, Arsène Lupin. The upshot will be remembered. The gentlemen of the police and the gendarmerie shrugged their shoulders and paid no attention to this lucubration. But four of the local country gentry took their rifles and went shooting, with their eyes fixed skyward, as though they meant to pot a few rooks. In half an hour, they had caught sight of the murderer. Two shots, and he came tumbling from bough to bough. He was only wounded, and they took him alive. That evening, a Paris paper which did not yet know of the capture printed the following paragraphs. Enquiries are being made after a Monsieur and Madame Bragoff who landed at Marseille six weeks ago and there hired a motor car. They had been living in Australia for many years, during which time they had not visited Europe, and they wrote to the director of the Jardin d'Acclimatation, with whom they were in the habit of corresponding, that they were bringing with them a curious creature of an entirely unknown species, of which it was difficult to say whether it was a man or a monkey. According to Monsieur Bragoff, who is an eminent archaeologist, the specimen in question is the anthropoid ape, or rather the ape-man, the existence of which had not hitherto been definitely proved. The structure is said to be exactly similar to that of Pithecanthropus erectus, discovered by Dr. Dubois in Java in 1891. This curious, intelligent, and observant animal acted as its owner's servant on their property in Australia, and used to clean their motor car, and even attempt to drive it. The question that is being asked is, where are Monsieur and Madame Bragoff? Where is the strange primate? that landed with them at Marseille. The answer to this question was now made easy. Thanks to the hints supplied by Arsène Lupin, all the elements of the tragedy were known. Thanks to him, the culprit was in the hands of the law. You can see him at the Jardin d'Acclimatation, where he is locked up under the name of Three Stars. He is, in point of fact, a monkey, but he is also a man. He has the gentleness and the wisdom of the domestic animals and the sadness which they feel when their master dies. But he has many other qualities that bring him much closer to humanity. He is treacherous, cruel, idle, greedy, and quarrelsome. And above all, he is immoderately fond of brandy. Apart from that, he is a monkey. Unless, indeed... A few days after Three Star's arrest, I saw Arsène Lupin standing in front of his cage. Lupin was manifestly trying to solve this interesting problem for himself. I had once said, for I had set my heart upon having the matter out with him, You know, Lupin, that intervention of yours, your argument, your letter, in short, did not surprise me so much as you might think. Oh, really? he said calmly. And why? Why? Because the incident has occurred before, seventy or eighty years ago. Edgar Allan Poe made it the subject of one of his finest tales. In those circumstances, the key to the riddle was easy enough to find. Arsène Lupin took my arm and, walking away with me, said, When did you guess it yourself? On reading your letter, I confessed. And at what part of my letter? At the end. At the end, eh? 
after I had dotted all the I's. So here is a crime which accident causes to be repeated under quite different conditions, it is true, but still with the same sort of hero, and your eyes had to be opened as well as other people's. It needed the assistance of my letter, the letter in which I amused myself, apart from the exigencies of the facts, by employing the argument and sometimes the identical words used by the American poet in a story which everybody has read. So you see that my letter was not absolutely useless, and that one may safely venture to repeat to people things which they have learned only to forget them. Wherewith Lupin turned on his heel and burst out laughing in the face of the old monkey, who sat with the air of a philosopher, gravely meditating.